Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merc and fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking and I'm Ellie Newman This week, I've been thinking about barriers and limits, real and imagined, external and self-imposed. I've been thinking about migration, inclusion, exclusion, cooperation and competition. And I've been thinking about misinformation and how a practice that has been happening since the beginning of time has currently been getting such negative press. My guest today is Claudia Romo Edelman. She is a Mexican-Swiss diplomat, a special advisor to the United Nations, and the founder of the We Are All Human Foundation, and she's the co-host of its podcast, Global Goalscast. She works with UNICEF and the UN to advocate for human rights and advance equality globally. Welcome, Claudia, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you so, so much, Ellie, for having me. This is a pleasure. So you're a self-described possibilityist, um, and your foundation reflects that in its mission to advance an agenda of equity, inclusion, and representation. Can I just want to start with you, maybe tell us a little bit more about the workings of We Are All Human. Sure, absolutely. And I will start by saying we are making progress as humanity, as there has never been progress before. Everything that you want to imagine from um, the amount of people that have uh, have access to vaccinations or electricity or water, um, the amount of people that have received education. If you would be, you and I, Ellie, would be a baby girl, there would be no better place, no better time ever in history than this. Um, if you're a girl, the most likelihood is that you're going to have the right to vote, to have education, to have access to um, healthcare, and also to empowerment for getting a job. So my my foundation, as you rightly said, is also a possibilistic, which is we're optimistic, uh, but we're also realistic. But in reality, what we are is we believe that this is possible. So possibilistic sounds right. And the only thing that stands on the way for me on the progress that we're making is the fundamental but very dangerous issue that we forget that we all belong to the same human family. You have seen that happen in the past in history. You don't want to see that again. This is not the world. We're not, I'm not going to spend, you know, like I spent 20 years working on humanitarian affairs. And the one thing that can distract us is divisive language, creating barriers more than creating common ground and thinking of the world inside of a bubble. That means the air is limited because if you think outside of the bubble, if you bust your bubbles, you will see that nature and the world are like air, which is abundance. And to your frame around migration is that it's it's a purely positive and natural phenomenon. And you say it is the strength born from a diversity of peoples and ideas that remind us that we are all human. So I want to talk a little about like what that looks like. And it seems also to be the objective of your, of your podcast to demonstrate that. So for you, what does that look like, that positive aspect of the the diversity and ideas that are all connected with our humanity? My my podcast, The Global Goalscast, which I would love all your uh, audience to stay tuned to that, The Global Goalscast is not, um, you know, like it's not biased against one thing or the other when it comes to migration. I happen to think that migration is ancient, unstoppable, and also positive, 
But at the end of the day, what you really need to understand, what, what is very important is that people make their decisions based on understanding as opposed to fears, based on facts, on a set of uh, issues that connect you to, you know, to connect you to the various uh, salience that you have. In the case of migration, I understand um, I understand myself what it feels to be a migrant, which is nothing else but a person that doesn't live in their country of origin for more than a year. Of those migrants, you have more than 255 million people around the world that are migrants. That is 3.5% of the population worldwide, and they generate more than 9% of the GDP globally. That That's more than $7 trillion yearly, and migrants like myself, living and loving the country where they are, uh, spend 85% of their income in-house and send 15% of what, you know, like 15% away to their home countries. That 15% of all the migrants together is more than $600 billion a year. And that is three times more than all the foreign aid um, budgets all together. So the contribution, not only not only at the social level, uh, but also at the economical level for, you know, like of migration is the one that makes me understand, okay, so this is not only a political or a humanitarian issue, this is an economic issue. If we would actually be able to, you know, to maximize the economic potential of migrants, not only for the country, for all around the world, it would be a, you know, like it would be a very different conversation. So my podcast, in this case, when we were doing the episode of migration, we decided to talk about the facts, the, 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 also the fact that there is something absolutely new called the Global Compact for Migration, which is a set of rules, if you want, agreed by 191 countries um, about how to make migration orderly, safe and regular. That doesn't mean that anyone is going to tell anybody how many migrants do you take or how do you deal with migration and how many rights do you give them. It's by far more, okay, so if we're going to be playing a sport, let's at least agree on the rules of the game and let's call whatever it is, um, you know, like migration as opposed to be confused with other terminology, legal terminology, terminology like refugees and so on. Imagine, Ellie, that for the last 100 years or more, we've been talking about like international migration as in playing basketball without knowing whether it was in or out and almost like trying to play with another country basketball when they were playing volleyball and someone else was playing bowling. You know, like it's not possible to believe that we have so far um, survived migration in a way without having the rules of the game. So I'm very, very confident. And that's what I wanted to express in my episode of migration. And so what are the elements of this new global framework for managing migration in a unified manner? What are the goals and what were the obstacles to creating this compact? And you've been so successful. What do you think were the elements that, that all nations shared who are a part of this that understand why this is so needed? Well, the first part, and I feel very, very proud to have been part of that, and I don't, I no longer work, I started a sabbatical from the UN eight weeks ago, or actually seven weeks ago, and uh, and so I'm no longer part of that, but I was, I was, I was a witness, and I was part of 
the building of it. And you can only imagine that in a time where multilateral agreements are being questioned by certain countries, where you say like, now I'm like, I'm going to retreat from this or that or that. And on top of that, uh, to have like an issue like migration be the center, like the theme, it was complicated, right? Like to get uh, to get most of countries along and say like, we have to talk about this. We have to understand the phenomena of migration because so far the understanding that was last year, the understanding was rhetorical or based on ideology. A lot of the countries were um, uncertain about like what migration meant for them, meaning what were they doing in the trajectory because at least so far migration is understood mostly or most of the limelight of migration comes to the place when uh, the place and the moment in which a migrant arrives to the new country and then there's a lot of focus on integration rights access etc but there are four points of migration and three of them were quite obscure for you know like for people working on this on this um, scene so we needed to use this opportunity to understand the phenomenon of migration to understand that yes seven trillion dollars is a lot that the four points of migration are the moment and the place in which a person decides to move then the transit of that person to another point, the point of destination when a person arrives. And very, very important, what happens when a person wants to go back to their country and the transit towards that. So by having done for more than a year, a very in-depth analysis where each country actually had to do a lot of research and putting data on the table and then the data was analyzed at the global level, we were able to understand that actually the myth of migration is separate. You think that men are the ones that migrate and it's 50% women. You think that migrants go south to north, like poor to rich, and that's no longer the case. Migrants move from everywhere to everywhere, particularly south to south. You think that migrants are uh, mostly illegal or in unskilled, and that is also not the case. Uh, there are like drivers of uh, of migration that are pushing people of all ages and all types of education level to move, for example, climate change. So by having this incredible set of understanding, it was possible to do 23 points in which the um, in which the 191 countries said. I will, uh, this is what we understand by transit. These are the rights, this is how we understand the drivers of migration, what is driving migration and how are we going to define it and separate it from other types of movement. This is how uh, we're going to treat someone when there's a transit. If you're a country of um, recipient country and you don't want to receive people, it is your right. But this is how you have to give them, you know, like this is the way in which you can reject them. And these are the tools for government. So I think that the most important and surprising part for me of this global compact for migration that I'm very, very hopeful for is that the responsibility doesn't lie anymore in the recipient country if you want. There's an equal amount of responsibility given to countries of origin to make sure that they deliver the 
quality uh, the the qualities and the uh, the services needed for their people not to not to leave. So it puts a lot of emphasis on development. It puts a lot of emphasis on making sure that countries are okay and that that people don't want to move overall. Because Ellie, tell me, do you know anybody that doesn't want to stay home? Well, it's interesting because, first of all, I just want to say, if anyone wants to understand the inner workings of Claudia Roma Edelman, all they need to do is understand what you've done in, during your sabbatical of the last seven weeks. And we're going to get to that at the second half of the interview, um, because I think that describes unequivocally your determination and, and courage and um, motivation and your determination to get things done. And I think that it's so important, the reframing you've done of migrants as an economic powerhouse and that you are laying the facts out for people to understand that migration is a positive force rather than a drain. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the aspects that you just mentioned, because you say it's a social, political, and economic um, impact. And it, that's for the individual and the society. And the other, I think, such interesting element you bring in is not only the nation that the migrant is migrating to, but the nation that they've left and the relationship between the two nations. Yes. Maybe we'll just talk about that as far as your personal experience, because you decided to leave Mexico and your predetermined path that, as you described, for generations had been determined. And you just said, well, no, I don't think so. I think I want something else and something different. Um, what do you think gave you the courage to migrate? Um. And and because that's such a huge decision point. You know, yeah. I think there are so many people that may say, you know, I want something different. I want something better. I just want something else. But they don't move. Mm -hmm. So for me, and I think, Ellie, this is the first time that I speak about that, um, at least in public. But for me, when I was literally like 22 or something, everything was set. You see what I mean? I, I like my life had uh, it's almost like an architect had already came and draw the plans. So I had a boyfriend. I had a, a plan for getting married. Probably I was going to live in the south part of Mexico City. I was going to do, you know, like it's some, somehow I could see it all. I could see all the exact same um, lifestyle that everyone around me had and you know like and 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 in a way it just felt um small it just felt that I wanted more it just felt like well if I'm gonna get married and I'm gonna have like I don't know five children or whatever and, I, and they're all gonna go to this school and they're all gonna look very pretty when you know like in the morning when they get their apple to go to school I want to leave something else before because I was very attracted to Europe and very attracted to languages and very attracted to understanding, um, understanding, you know, like how other people were, you know, like, and I was also very interested in, I am from the north of Mexico, so I'm pretty tall, I'm six feet tall. And people in Mexico City, particularly guys, for me, it was hard actually to see any other person, you know, like that was, uh, tall and they told me in Holland everyone is tall and I just wanted to go and see and experience it and I um, I left um, I left with the purpose of going for six months and just experimenting and then just going back to my predestined predestined life but I I liked it I liked actually flying and I loved looking at um, issues that were connected and interconnected and global and I um I literally 
didn't come back. So I sent my engagement ring by DHL or UPS or whatever it was at that time. And I was like, no, I think I'm going to stay here for a little longer. As a fact, I just want to grow and I just wanted more. And I just wanted to, you know, like I started learning languages on the go. I never took either German or French or Italian classes. And I just had to learn that. And that was for me an incredible stimulation. And I was able to work. I had like two or three jobs. I was part of the Mexican embassy in, in Switzerland, but I also had I was an anchor of radio and I just felt that this new environment was, you know, making me um, learn how to be the best me. And yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I, I don't know you well, but I look at you and I say, okay, here's someone whose talent, skills and abilities and passions for being a humanitarian and changing the world and making it a better place needs to be out in the world and and for you to live your authentic life and for the benefit of all of us and the rest of the world we needed you to migrate um and and so i think it's so important that that this new frame be cast around or an old frame um be brought back to encompass migration and maybe we can talk about why the timing now um Yes. Why is global cooperation more important today than ever before? And then maybe after that, we'll talk about the negative aspects that are being heaped upon migration. But let's start with why in today's world, this global cooperation is so important. Mm -hmm. And just one more anecdotal part, if you want, if you allow me. In um, in the 25 years that I lived in Europe, I I always felt sort of like exotic, you know, like the, I did see my neighbors looking at me like, ah, she has the pineapple on the head, like the imaginary pineapple, you know what I mean? They were yeah, putting yeah, yeah. a little rumba on the shoulders and so on. Um, and nevertheless, I felt exotic and somehow, you know, like intriguing. And then I moved to America four years ago and I literally had a shock in terms of like how a Mexican or a Hispanic person and a woman is perceived. And for me, that was like, in a way, shocking, as in like someone said like, oh my God, please don't use your bicycle in New York because you're going to be confused with the pizza deliverers. And I was like, what does it have to do with it? And so I started looking at the world as a Hispanic woman in America. And I just realized for the first time ever in my life, I had a better, you know, like when you're a marketer like me for social causes, you normally have a, a complicated product that you have to package in a way that is super attractive, poverty, AIDS, um, vaccination, woman empowerment, and then you have to make them really sexy and really attractive for people to care, right? Uh, in this case, when I arrived to America, I was like, this package, this product is so incredible. You see Hispanics, Latinas, they create small businesses six times faster than any other group in America. They're the job creator number one. They are entrepreneurs. They, they set up their little kitchen, their little cleaning place. Um, they have the only problem is they don't scale up. Uh, we work super hard and they have the, the Hispanics have that incredible ethic. They are, you know, like very values based. They have families of two. They're, for example, African-Americans have uh, single mothers, 80 
75% of African-Americans are single mothers, but Hispanics is all together. We're young, we're educated, we make more than $45,500 income average, which is more than the um, middle class, 42,000 42, is the middle class, so we're higher. And we're young. So for the next, and the one other thing that impressed me is that contrary to Asians or African-Americans, Hispanics don't marry among Hispanics only. One Hispanic will marry, one in two will marry a Hispanic. That means the other one will marry a non-Hispanic. So you can see the expansion of this. So for the next 100 million young people, 60 million will be Hispanics. And I was like, my God, you know, this is a $1.7 trillion, uh, $1.7 billion economy. Uh, we have an incredible acquisition power. We create more jobs than anybody. This is 12% of the GDP of this country. And yet, they are not represented in media, not represented in governments, not represented anywhere. And if you started looking at the perception of Hispanics in studies, number one was criminal, number two was waiter, number three was pizza deliverer. And I started looking at the reality versus the perception and I was like, this is what I want to do. Now that I'm living in America, I'm going to start my sabbatical in a way to be a CMO for the Hispanic community. No one is asking me, but man, I know how to do it. The chief marketing officer, I know how to do this. And this is such a beautiful, incredible product. It just I love that you're, I hadn't grasped that earlier after, after looking at your history and what you're doing. I'm like, she's rebranding the entire Hispanic population, um, at, le at least in America at this point. And go you. <laughs> if I had to wager, I'd say you're going to be successful. And you're doing it with facts is what is incredible. Because you, you know, you mentioned a number of facts that I think people have no idea are true. Um, and so you are not, it, there's no false fake media going on here. You are talking about facts, you're talking about the fact that the majority of Hispanics come into this country speaking English, um, and they are actually a boost for the economy and, and that the image that people have and the image that is propagated through all sorts of media and entertainment is completely false. Well, and, but I do understand as I, again, as part of this process, and I do want you to wish me luck because I just started and I think it's a process of two years, but not 10. And um, and the current political situation is giving the Hispanics an opportunity to actually wake up and say, like, you know, our time is now. Our time is now to act as a community. Our time is now to realize how powerful we are as opposed to just potentially powerful. But we need to get our act together. We need to unify. You know, like the problem with the Hispanic community, um, one of the main ones for me is that we think small. It's the phenomena of the fat girl that grows up to be a wonderful and beautiful teenager and still looks at herself in the mirror as a fat girl that doesn't actually have that, you know, like that, that self-confidence. And we have to start thinking uh, as Hispanics, that 55 million, that 17% of this country as opposed to I am Cuban from Miami. I don't even, you know, like let alone Mexicans and Venezuelans, it's really fragmented. So a, a work of unification is needed. But at the same time, Ellie, I also re realize that in this country right now, there is more salsa sold than ketchup and there's more tortilla sold than bread. So if you would be living in one of the border countries uh, of the border um, uh, cities in America, 
you would be like, oh my God, I cannot find my bread anymore. You know, like it is, it is something. So we have to work together towards an integration that feels natural, where America is represented by the beautiful variety of people that you host, that this is a country made of immigrants and that, you know, like the, the, the country is getting browner, whether you like it or not. So how are we going to do it and do it in a respectful way where America gets uh, richer and bigger, particularly not only as, you know, I, I truly believe that Hispanics are the new middle class of America, but richer in terms of like its grandiosity and its leadership in the world. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Let's talk about the divisive language and the fear. And now it seems to be um, a time where that has escalated, or at least it has been brought out into the open. Maybe it exists prior, but now the the lights are squarely on it. And I think, you know, it's a tricky thing that you'll be balancing in the next two years. And if we look at what you've done in seven weeks and we figure that multiply into two years, I, I think you've, for you, that's a pretty big window. Um, you'll be able to accomplish so much. But, you know, there's this idea that America has truly always welcomed the the world's tired, poor and huddled masses. And I'm not sure if we look at that factually that that is true in many aspects of the country. Um, we definitely are not doing that today. And the face of the nation is changing. And I think that's causing a huge amount of fear for many that were the majority and are soon to be the minority. And it's striking terror in a lot of those hearts because they believe that they are being going to be left behind or somehow threatened. You know, it's a vulnerability that has been, been shown and they are feeling threatened. And so there's got to be this balance of we and a move away from us and them. Um, some things that have happened in the past is sort of this idea of stay small and stay in your place and, um, you know, don't be too visible um, in some places and not just America and, and probably less in America as in other countries. There's forced assimilation and a sense of lost identities and that the way to succeed and be a part of the nation is to forego your identity and your culture and to assimilate. Um, there's a fantastic book. Uh, my daughter's actually reading it. I'm not sure she thinks it's fantastic or her other classmates will. But for 11th grade, Ronald Takaki's book, A Different Mirror, and he talks about, I wish everyone in our country could listen to the first hour of it, um, where he talks about the true history of the development of our multicultural nation and how difficult it was from the beginning and how factions developed um, between the many migrating groups. What do you think, where do we start as far as trying to understand the reasonable fears and then beginning to assuage them? I think that divisive language is getting traction, not only in America, uh, but in a number of other places around the world. Um, I think that there are many reasons. One of them is the, the unfortunate lack of uh, trust in media uh, is generating a, a sense of um, a sense of, you know, like bubbling in a way, because you want to, first of all, there's no middle ground. And so we're, when, when media organizations, because they need to survive business models, go into the extremes, then you lose the center. And then you start losing a sense of common facts, which is when you have no common facts, then it's very, very hard to have a discussion or a rational 
understanding of a situation. Uh, fake news is the result of, you know, like of, of that. And the problem with fake news is that you don't know what real news is. And when you extrapolate that to politics, we can talk about that in a second. But when you extrapolate that, for example, in humanitarian affairs, this is really severe. Mothers don't know whether they should vaccine, you know, vaccinate their kids or not because what they read, they, it's unclear, and they don't. They distrust, and in a world of distrust, everybody is somehow distressed. Um, social media has also played a role in emphasizing the emphasizing the divisive language because when you start having you know, like pseudonyms and uh, just like you don't have to be you. Um, not only there's a sense of extrapolation, as in like no one is looking at me, no one knows who Batman is or whatever my my avatar name will be. So therefore, it can be the worst of me uh, because social media has also created this fake sense of who you are by trying to create someone you are not, like having the perfect house, the perfect image, the perfect Instagram accounts. So there's a sense of there's a sense of unauthentic self on the social media that allows for others also to try to be uh, re really kind of like the worst of them, racist and so on. Every time that there is a negative comment from um, high up in in, you know, politicians criticizing other countries. When I was working at UNICEF, I saw the spike of comments towards the YouTube videos that we did of African kids and so on and so on going up. So social media plays an incredible role in replicating poisoning language that comes as rain and then, uh, you know, like all the worms in the grass come out. And the third point I would say is that technology is no friend on this. It can be, but it's no friend right now because um, it feeds you with what you want to hear. It's just like feeding you with information and these algorithms and all these engineers behind Facebook and Google and so on are very clear about what creates engagement and what creates engagement, they will feed you again and again and again and again. So you have uh, you have a, a, a world in which people that believe that the others might come and steal their jobs will actually read about that and read about that and be fed with that information from the algorithms. And when you have a world in which automation is going to happen and people are scared, the, trust, the Edelman Trust Barometer says that 55% of the people are scared of innovation only because they don't understand it, then it's easy to actually blame the fear of like, oh my God, a robot's going to come and take my job and then just turn around and say like migrants should go out, right? It's, a, it's an easy translation. It's the proxy of the fear. So overall, I think that all I want to do is work on busting the bubbles, um, making sure that people understand that the world is not part of their algorithms and that they have to actually see other sources, other people, other colors. I also want to make sure that we understand that we're losing the muscle of the eye of seeing people for people. It's it's enough. This country is so rich and so wonderful. You can't see people by your red, your blue, your Democrat, your uh, your or or either top down. You're a receptionist or you're a CEO, and I'll treat you accordingly. I think that overall, what we have to do is go back to be. Um, to exercise the muscle of humanity and, and and just understand that it is a muscle. It can be trained. Discrimination is is not a choice. It's not genetic. It's actually just like something that you control and you do. And it is super important to remember that the big price that we will pay if we start looking at 
uh, a people that don't belong to the same human family is that there's going to be a gap and a bridge between the haves and the have-nots that will, you know, like result in even more anger. It seems so critical to understand, for everyone to understand, um, and be aware of who's controlling the narrative. Historian Yuval Harari argues that stories led to our rise to the top of the food chain by enabling us to cooperate flexibly in very large numbers of unknown people. But it was typically within our tribe, and there developed this mindset and brain patterning that we cooperate with those within our tribe, and we compete with those outside of it. And it's the narrative that we are exposed to and that we accept that creates our mindset as to who's within our tribe and who's without. Um, and so how do you go about tackling the shift of that mindset? I mean, it seems like you've got four pillars. You've got to shift the mindset to a belief in possibility and abundance. And then you've got to shift the mindset and change the narrative around who belongs in, in our tribe and outside of it and how those outside of it, the fear that's connected with those outside of our tribe want to destroy us and take what we have. That's correct. I mean, like you nailed it. <laughs> I um, I work only on mind shifting uh, and agenda setting. Those are the two things. I'd like elevate something that people need to see and just change perceptions by creating content, by creating uh, opportunities for people to, you know, to meet. So events and by creating uh, opportunities and platforms for role models to be seen that have not seen. So overall, I am, um, for example, in the case of Hispanics, I'm planning on doing something with iHeartMedia to create content to showcase successful Hispanics. Simple. Like his, if you ask Hispanics how many role models we have in business or in uh, in politics, it's going to be hard actually to come to a good list. They, we do have a couple of role models, a great number of role models in culture and arts and music. So by exposing uh, by exposing role models, you create the, I can, I see it, I can be it. Um, I'm working towards, uh, you know, like I just published, as you saw, a section, a portfolio, the September issue of Marie Claire was curated by uh, highlighting successful migrants, 12 amazing badass women that, um, you know, like that are, uh, that are role models in fashion, in sports, in acting, in politics. And so overall, I'm trying to get the word out and talking to the community one step at a time about be proud to be who you are. Well, just let, let me just want one more thing, which is um, I think that the, the issue of equity, inclusion, and diversity is going to be essential for America in the next years. So I, I want to be part of that. Like I want to be part of that movement that has so many champions in trying to bring um, integration and compassion for the people that have, you know, that feel scared at the same time for the people that want to be integrated. So by creating that that understanding of, yes, I know how hard it must feel not to find your bread in your village. But by the same time, you know, like understanding that your village is going to grow more if you have more workforce, right? Like at the end of the day, is that tension that world human tries to do by advancing equity, um, diversity and inclusion by shifting the minds of the people, creating content, making sure that we change the narrative one step at a time, 
arming and providing um, tools for different people to know, my God, the world is actually making progress. I didn't know that we're not so bad. So why are we so scared? And trying to bring the sense of abundance to like, no, listen, there is enough of everything for everybody. Uh, so don't panic and don't push back because, we, you know, like it is it is it is incredible what we're doing as humanity. And then finally, obviously, my heart is with women. And so I, I spend a lot of time giving trainings uh, on personal brand, on, you know, like soft skills, like public speaking, uh, networking for pleasure and networking for purpose for uh, women, particularly in emerging markets, like I go to China, I give trainings in China, I go, um, I love training Latinas in America, and I'm going now um, on corporations just trying to, yeah, you know, you you, you want to be encouraged as a woman, you want to be encouraged by someone else and say, like, you can do this, here are some tools. Your Marie Claire collaboration is a huge step toward uh, bringing compassion and understanding of migrants. Christy Turlington Burns in the September issue says, we can't change the system until we acknowledge our part in it. When sharing her family's immigrant story um, and her mother's migration from El Salvador. And it seems that at this point in our history, we are at odds with our own most cherished values that, that our leaders today are acting in the name of American values, but operating in uh, manners that are completely in opposition to those. And yet, you still believe we're making progress and, and show us that we are. Um, where does that balance begin to tip? Uh, where people can, just as an individual, open up what what shifts someone's ability do you believe to be able to let go of their fear and the stories that they cling to that are connected with that fear to be able to look at a, a different scenario and be open to it first of all it's good for your own health to be open-minded as opposed to restricted cancer comes from you know cancer and a number of diseases physically come from tension and distress so when you let go, when you're more open-minded, you will have a better skin, a better health, and a better life. So I think that overall, it is part of the and the mentality of where you have to, you know, like where you have to know this is good for you. It's good for you to be more open because fear, isolation, and hate will take us backward. And it's only love, compassion, and cooperation that will move us forward. I absolutely believe on that. So at the personal level, you will have a better life if you're more open and you're more tolerant. Secondly, as as a victim in a way of technology you just have to understand you've been used so bust the bubble read something once a week that is different to you that is different to what if you're a fox news reader just go to another source if you're a cnn person go to fox just try to understand that there's another perspective and at the end of the day remember try to uh, try to see people for people that's an exercise that is so wonderful it's just see like make an effort to say like once a day, I'm just going to go around for half an hour around my town and we'll see people for people. I won't see whether they are tall or small or black or white or whatever it is. It just feels so good. Um, I had this exercise when I was, um, you know, like I, I think that at some point my uh, girlfriends and I had a, a like uh, how to understand boys. And uh, one of the girls giving the course said, well, you just have to start training your right to see man for man, as opposed to just like uh, entities out there. And it is true that it makes a difference. It is true that your eye can be trained. So I would start by that. And now if you want to go further, 
if you want to actually make an effort of support, just make a list of the people that are uh, of the things where your dollar can support migrants. Have a list of your own shopping, sh your own shopping list, How a shopping guide, I apologize, your own shopping guide. Uh, favorite restaurants that are run by migrants. Uh, buy designers that are uh, that are done by migrants. Just show your voice every time that you can make a choice. You can make it with your own with your own self without having to go any further. I love that you brought up that it's in your own personal best interest because I think you know we look at our nation and we've got our opioid drug crisis. We have so many deaths there. We have the highest level of depression in our country's history. We have people that are lost and so grappling and grabbing on to a, a fearful mindset and. By participating, by feeling that there is hope and that they can be part of the solution um, and rather than focusing on the problem, um, Rihanna talks about that also in the September issue of Marie Claire and with her makeup line, CLF's mission about everyone participating in their own way to the, make the world a more just and equitable world and that by participating in that that that's a positive personal experience one of feeling hope and abundance and value right the, the thing that every psychologist or sociologist or anyone that pays attention would tell you that feeling that you have are, are self-empowered and you have purpose and you're a part of something and so you have connection and identity and you're able to affect change, that there's nothing that creates a more satisfying human experience. Yes. And, and again, we are making progress. This is working. Just getting to the winning team. It's possible. And that we can all be on that team. <laughs> <It's> not, <Yes. laughs> that this team is a team that's arms are open to invite everyone. Yes. And um, Ellie, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talking to you. So uh, maybe we'll just end with the editor of Marie Claire, editor-in-chief of Marie Claire, Anne Fullenweider says, We believe there is more that unites than divides us, and that America, whose strength comes from difference and diversity, should be a country of open arms instead of closed borders. So thank you. I've been speaking with Claudia Romo Edelman. Um, she is on fire and on the move. And uh, amazing to see what she's done in the last seven weeks. Can't wait to see, Claudia, what you do in this, this next year. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Claudia, amazing to learn about all that you're doing and loved reading the Marie Claire edition from front to back. So, so much information in there and different organizations and people's personal stories, but ways to participate. 